Welcome to Creative on Purpose Live. This show asserts that you are enough, yet capable of more. We need you. Are you ready to make a difference? This show helps you step into what's next with integrity and intention. It's time to be creative on purpose. This season is called Endeavor, Developing and Delivering Work That Matters. Our guests this season are leaders engaged and work aligned with who they are, what they're good at, and where they belong. I'm your host, Scott Perry. Learn more about me and my work at BeCreativeOnPurpose.com. Let's meet today's guest. Donald Robertson, welcome to the broadcast. Please tell our viewers who you are, what uh, what you're engaged in now, and where people can find you. Well, hi, Scott. First of all, thanks very much for inviting me along today. Um, it's always a pleasure to, to speak to you and to do these podcasts. And uh, so I am Donald Robertson, a psychotherapist, cognitive behavioral therapist, uh, an author, a trainer, my background is in academic philosophy and psychotherapy, and I specialise particularly in anxiety disorders as a therapist. And the relationship between philosophy, ancient philosophy, and modern psychotherapy, particularly the relationship between stoicism and cognitive therapy. And at the moment, I'm speaking to you from Athens in Greece. Yeah, so please tell us a little bit about about that. How how is it that uh, you, you uh, the last time we spoke, I think was in the very very early days of this broadcast when it was known as Meet the Modern Stoics, and you were in Nova Scotia, but you are neither Canadian nor Greek <laughs> by origin. So tell us how uh, how how you ended up in Athens and what you're doing there. Well, I'm kind of in the process of moving, and so I, I'm halfway between living here temporarily and, and on a little working holiday, I guess. I don't quite know how to describe it, but I'm moving from Nova Scotia to Toronto and Ontario, and in between, I'm staying in Athens for a couple of months, because I had to travel to London for the Modern Stoicism Conference, actually, and I thought, well, while I'm in Europe, I'll fly over and stay in Greece. I had some writing to do, so I'm working on my laptop. I thought I could be anywhere. Why not stay in Greece for a couple of months and I can kind of explore the place because I've never been here before. And uh, you can't tell I'm in Greece from the backdrop here, unfortunately. It's we don't have the Acropolis behind me. I don't have a lot of Greek stuff. I've got the Isle of Athena here. I don't know oh, nice. This is what my uh, webcam uh, goes in from my laptop to keep it safe. There you go. <laughs> so that's really, uh, it must be really exciting for you to be in the yeah. birthplace of the philosophy that so um, informs your work. And I, I know that uh, I was a history major in college when I would visit places like Gettysburg, places that I had um, studied in college and be there. They, you because of what I know about that battle, being in that place, I really feel a resonance with just the geography that um, I'd normally, you know, I don't think I would have felt if I didn't have such a deep interest and knowledge of what had happened there. Do you find that you are picking up 
weird vibrations or resonances with the places that you're going? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's generally kind of interesting to to be in Greece and to be in Athens. And some of the locations that I've visited, I've made a real effort to kind of get around and um, visit a few places. So I've been out of Athens. The only time I've been outside of Athens recently was to go to Delphi, where the, the oracle uh, pronounced that no man was wiser than Socrates and in a way kind of kick-started uh, Socrates' career as a philosopher, his philosophical mission. So I wanted to go there, and Delphi in particular is like one of these places you go to. It's in the I didn't realize actually that it's in the mountains, um, and uh, it, it, the, I would describe it as kind of having the feel of being in an alien landscape. So the the story is that it used to be a shrine uh, in some sort of Greek prehistory to the uh, the, to the god. Um, Python, uh, who was a, a sort of primitive uh, god or a dragon, and he was slain by the god Apollo, who reconsecrated it to himself, and then it became the, the shrine to Apollo. And I kind of thought, if I was going to slay a dragon, this is where I would go to do it, <laughs> because it's such a kind of, it's like a, a surreal sort of movie. It's, it's a very epic kind of looking place. Um, and it also makes you realise that, that, you know, that it was a big deal. A lot of people went and asked questions at Delphi, but it's a bit of a trek from Athens. And, you know, that it, posing that question, uh, who's the wisest man or is Socrates the wisest man, uh, was uh, no small thing. It was a big deal and there was a whole process involved in doing it. So it was a serious thing. It caused a lot of controversy at the time as well, actually. They, uh, when they discuss that in court, both Xenophon and Plato, our two main sources, mention that when it's brought up during Socrates' trial, the jury, which consists of 500 people, if you can imagine that, were in uproar and had to be told to calm down. So they, there's obviously this was a touchy subject. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I've kind of been wondering about and taking it all in. Like you say, you know, occasionally you're touching things. Maybe Socrates touched this. Or maybe right. was there. The, one of the things that, that kind of affected me the most actually was going to the Lyceum, which we usually associate with Aristotle, right? Um, but, the, you know, the, like most things, the history is more complex than that. And before Aristotle... The sophists taught at the Lyceum, and so some important things happened there. And where you have sophists, you, you often find Socrates as well, like because he kind of liked to hang around with those guys and annoy them and stuff. So Socrates used to go to the Lyceum before Aristotle's time, and he would discuss philosophy there. So it has a storied history that goes way beyond. And also for the Stoics, so we're told Chrysippus lectured at one point at the, at the Lyceum as well after the time of Aristotle. So, uh, yeah, like, there's a lot more to some of these locations than we kind of initially assumed, I think. That's really fascinating. Well, I would love to talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing um, with Stoicism and the, the courses that you're building and the work that you're, the, you're doing so much to spread the virtues of, of Stoic philosophy and its continued relevance and importance in, in modern life. But, and many viewers here will, of course, be familiar with Stoicism because of my longstanding deep interest. But I would love for you to just 
just give us a thumbnail sketch, just a, a, a quick, um, it doesn't have to be an elevator pitch, but uh, just, just a quick uh, paragraph about what, what is Stoicism and, and why you think it still matters. Well, Stoicism is an ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, it was developed by a Phoenician merchant called Zeno of Citium, who was shipwrecked near here. And uh, he lost his entire fortune, became a cynic philosopher. He studied all the different schools of Athenian philosophy, and then he founded his own school of philosophy, Stoa Poikile, or Painted Poach, in 300 BC. And so Stoicism initially was kind of an eclectic philosophy, but it's also heavily indebted to Socrates. Um, some people even described it as a Socratic philosophy. So the, the central teaching of Stoicism, and it was a big, complex philosophy that survived for about 500 years, uh, you know, so it evolved over time. But essentially, the Stoics believed that virtue is the only true good, and virtue is not a great translation of the Greek term, arity. It means something more like excellence of character. Um, so flourishing or excellence is the only thing that's kind of intrinsically good, and everything else in life is relatively indifferent. We prefer some things over others, but in a more kind of detached um, way, the, the only really fundamental good in life is to flourish as a human being. And for Stoics, that means progressing towards wisdom and living rationally. So that's in a nutshell how I would describe Stoicism. And one of the things that that I think you actually exhibit through your work um, that's tied to, to, to the Stoic tradition is the idea that, so the Stoics definitely, um, ex uh, one of the premises is that we are inherently, we have the capacity for reason. It doesn't mean that we're always engaged in being reasonable, but we have that capacity. And they also, um, as a kind of fundamental principle, say that we are inherently social creatures and that we, you know, we must enhance our lives while we are also enhancing the lives of others. And that that element seems to infuse your work. You have a very large online community on Facebook from the modern Stoics. You are an organizer of the Stoicon Conference and Stoic Week. Um, that seems to be an important driver in your work that you're trying to really elevate the landscape that you've, um, you know, that you're operating in. Yeah, so early on in life, uh, I decided that I wanted to try and do something that I felt was kind of more, more meaningful. I actually started off working in computing very briefly. I had a job for about three months, and the job I had was drawing diagrams of the flow of information. I was a systems analyst for a big computer company back in AR. Uh, using a piece of software that nobody else knew how to use. So I asked my boss one day, well, what's going to happen to these diagrams if no one else knows how to use the software? And he said, well, probably no one will ever look at them. <laughs> and so I came up, <laughs> what's the point? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm creating these things, like, kind of by definition, no one else is ever going to uh, be able to read. Um, but, you know, head office or whatever had said that they wanted this kind of thing done like digging holes in the road and filling them back in again busy work um and I, as a, a young guy i guess it was like 18 or something at the time i thought that's it you know I, I i don't want to do this again i want to start doing something that's kind of rewarding or fulfilling and that kind of got me into studying philosophy and doing therapy it took me a while to figure out how i could bring these different interests that i had together i usually say i was interested in meditation and stuff like that kind of self-help techniques visualization 
Um, I was in the Buddhist society and I was interested in philosophy. I was doing a philosophy degree and then I trained as a psychotherapist. So I wanted to have a job where I was kind of helping people. But I couldn't quite bring these three things together and that really annoyed me for some reason. You know, I kind of wanted to, to somehow weld them together. And then I discovered stoicism and it just kind of hit me that stoicism was the point at which all of these interests seemed to converge. And then from that point forward, it, it felt really as if I was doing my hobby um, as a you know for a living. It, it took a little while to build up momentum, but it's something that I've been working on for about twenty years now. So over time, it's kind of built up and it's built up, and and now that's pretty much my full time job is writing and running courses, predominantly that relate to to stoicism or related stuff like Socrates. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I, I, I understand and deeply appreciate how lucky one feels when one turns one ho one's hobby into their vocation. And, and well, I think a vocation is really when you turn your hobby into a career and that you, you find meaning and prosperity, um, you know, through doing work that matters. So this is a show about um, developing, identifying, developing, and delivering work that's done with uh, integrity and with intention. And you you are doing this through your work. Where where can people find more about you and the courses that you're that you're building? Well, my website is just Donald Robertson, just my name dot name. It's a bit of an odd top level domain, or whatever you call it. So it's not com. It's dot name n e m e. And then if you go there, that's my blog and my main website. And there's also a subdomain of that where all of my e-learning stuff is, all my courses. And that's learn.donaldrobertson.name. Or you can get there just by going to my main website, basically. So people want to find out anything about me, they can find out that the courses and the books and everything that I do via that. Fantastic. And so right now you're in the middle of a Socrates course. You have a course on thinking like a Roman emperor. That's um, that's based on uh, my favorite Stoic, Marcus Aurelius. And you have the community uh, on Facebook um, and you have uh, the Stoicon, which occurred in uh, in London this past uh, October. Is that right? And... Um, well, I guess we're still in October officially. Uh, and so you also um, you also ran this program called Live Like a Stoic for a week. Uh, I think that's a really what I love about that program is that it's it's kind of living Epictetus's um, maxim that learning that does not lead to action is useless. So you're you're taking Stoic concepts and exercises and practices and encouraging people to actually put them to use in their life. T tell us a little bit about that program. And and you've been learning a lot, um, gathering metrics and, and whatnot that, that's helping you figure out if it's if it's working. Well, that's a, that's a big thing that you've asked me about. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick overview because... Um, that's really run by the Modern Stoicism organization, which is a non-profit limited company. It's based in the UK and it's run by a team of volunteers, a multidisciplinary team. And I, I'm one of the founding members of that. So also, if you want to find out about that, the website for it is just modernstoicismoneword.com. And Professor Chris Gill, a Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at Exeter University in the UK is the head of that. 
uh, team, and he's the, the person that came up with the original idea for it, I think about six years or seven years ago now, roughly. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, well, I'll tell you the kind of backstory to that a little bit, and then maybe it leads into some of the things that we do. Um, so I, one of the things I did was record uh, an exercise called The View From Above, and I put it on the internet because I was experimenting with it in training courses that I ran. I used to run a training school for psychotherapists in the UK. So I tried teaching them lots of different psychological techniques. And uh, one of Chris's students, a guy called Patrick Usher, was, uh, found this on the internet and he played it to a group of other students. And Chris had been doing this thing called, um, it was living according to the advice of Galen for a week initially who was the court physician of Marcus Aurelius. And so seeing if ancient Roman advice about health and well-being could be adapted to be relevant to the kind of holistic advice. Um, and so then they had the idea, well, we could take this recording and we could do a live like Marcus Aurelius or live like a stoic for a week. So Chris organized a workshop with a whole bunch of people, psychologists, classicists, uh, philosophers, um, Jules Evans, Tim LeBorn were at it as well, a bunch of other people. And then over time that developed into this organisation and uh, we were kind of uh, surprised at first at the level of interest. Uh, it got covered in all of the, the British broadsheet newspapers. It's been in a bunch of magazines around the world. Um, it's been on, I just did a thing the other week on BBC Radio, BBC World Service. Um, we just got covered in the Greek City News as well recently. I did a video for them. So there was a lot of media interest in what we were doing. And uh, it grew and it grew and it grew. I don't know how many people initially did Stoic Week the first time we ran it. It was probably a few dozen or something. I think the first major one we ran on the internet, we had 700. And then this year, we had 8,000 people doing Stoic Week online. So it's a free one-week course that people from all over the world can do. And uh, we designed that to be a kind of taster thing. So each of the seven days, they focus on a different exercise and a different aspect of stoicism. And then we started gathering data from it as well, because kind of the universities are kind of interested in that and funding and so on is sometimes tied into it, being able to show that you've collected some data and done some research. So we developed a thing called the Stoic Attitudes and Behaviours Scale, which has been developed a lot over the years, actually. We've got psychologists working on it at the moment. Tim LeBond is taking responsibility for that. He analyzes all our data. And so we use that and other established, validated measures from mainstream psychology um, to look at the effects of Stoic practices, um, doing it uh, for a week or so. And what we found initially was that there was roughly a 10% shift in measures of positive and negative affect, uh, life satisfaction uh, and well-being measures, stuff like that. But it was a kind of small informal study. That's not a, a, a bad improvement for just seven days. It's quite a short period. And actually, it was never really meant to be a, a psychological skills training or intervention. It was more like a kind of taster course, like here's a little bit of stoicism each day, a different subject. So we decided then to develop a bigger course that was more like a psychological skills training protocol. It's more like the kind of protocol you'd find, a manual you'd find in a controlled research study. And that's called Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training, or SMRT. And we usually run that once or twice a year. Maybe about a 1,000 people at a time do that. 
Uh, it's four weeks long. It's not an introduction to Stoicism. It's a skills training focusing on basic Stoic psychological skills, like the dichotomy of control and prosoke, or sell attention to yourself, uh, trying to live in accordance with your values and clarifying those values, uh, comparing them to Stoic virtues and stuff like that. And we found when we did that, there was a dose effect. So I should say every year with Stoic, we, we, we find pretty consistent results from the outcome measures. Um, so that was kind of reassuring. And then when we did SMRT, we found, again, consistently improvements but on a bigger scale. So we found more like a 25-30% shift in these wow. measures of mood and well-being. And then recently, we so over time, these are still only pilot studies, but they've been progressively refined over time as part of a kind of rolling research program. And the last thing we did was to start introducing a, a long-term follow-up so we begin like with a, a relatively short period of time, a three-month follow-up. That's your kind of starting point, and then we work out to maybe doing a, a six-month or one-year follow-up. But Tim found something quite surprising actually when he did the three-month follow-up. And this is, if this is replicated, I, I think it's particularly significant um, because normally, like what normally happens, you'd expect some kind of reduction in the improvements after a period of time, after any type of psychological skills training. Like, things kind of wear off a little bit over time. That, that's what happens. And you try and minimize that. He didn't find any reduction, like or virtually no reduction at all in the improvements that people had, which is actually really strange. Um, so we definitely need to see if that's replicated and we definitely need to see what happens at six months or one year follow-up because if you can achieve long-term lasting improvements from a, an approach like training in stoicism, that's kind of the holy grail of mental health in some ways because the promise of stoicism would be that maybe rather than a therapeutic approach, it might offer a preventative approach, which we call in psychology, resilience building. So we would give it to the normal population, not the clinical population, and it would reduce their risk, perhaps, of developing anxiety or depression or other problems in the future. But for that to work, it has to be sticky. Otherwise, you end up just doing the same training every six months or every year or whatever, and that's not particularly viable. But if there's a training that benefits people and doesn't wear off, in the way that CBT training seems to, then that would be special. And we're kind of wondering if that might be something that Stoicism can actually offer. So you mentioned the conference. That's another thing that modern Stoicism does. And we also have a, they have a, a, a blog which has hundreds of articles on it about Stoicism. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things that I'm, I'm one of a team of people that is involved in doing. Yeah, but if, if anybody is interested in Stoic philosophy, the Modern Stoicism site is has a wealth of information. The blog is something I look forward to to looking at new material every week. Um, I think there's actually a, a wacky article on Stoicism and creativity that got posted in the weeks before uh, the last conference. Um, so as we're approaching the end of our time together, I want to share some things that I'm hearing that I think would benefit other people who, like you, would like to engage in more meaningful work that serves other people, that enhances their well-being by making a difference in other people's lives. Um, so, I mean, you. you the, the, the first thing is this idea that 
you, you, it seems like you have tried a lot of things and some things like computer programming or what have you didn't really work out so well, but you learned an important lesson from, you know, a quote unquote negative experience. And then you, it helped you settle into um, kind of your developing your interests into projects that have eventually become a way of earning your living livelihood, which is really important. And then what I just heard you talking about with all the work that you're doing with the Modern Stoicism Group is the power of collaboration, number one, just working with others in addition to for and uh, doing work for others. And then the, uh, the other thing was the interdisciplinary aspect of it, that it's not, you know, you didn't just hang out with philosophers, you had scientists and uh, psychologists and historians and other all sorts of other domains you kind of feeding into this program and it seems like that must have really helped with kind of the spreadability um, and just the stickiness of the idea that you were promoting which is that stoicism can help you today yeah absolutely i mean in terms of the kind of more general picture about I don't know, finding finding your place in life and finding your vacation and stuff like that, Scott. I think one of the things I'd say, and this is something I noticed a long time ago, I've always been a guy that kind of fell between two stools or several stools or whatever. I've always been from the outset kind of multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. So it might be interesting just to speak to that for a moment. Sure. Because like you say, you know, that's where there's a lot of opportunity for creativity and originality and to kind of... Uh, pioneer new things and to kind of do your own thing. If you take any two things and combine them together that have never been combined before or that haven't been combined much, like stoicism and CBT or something, you know, you're kind of breaking new ground and you have the freedom to kind of be, you know, like uh, at the cutting edge of things and define your own, uh, you know, work and career. But the hurdle that you face, you know, there's pros and cons to all these things. The hurdle that you face when you do that is often there isn't an established framework and you don't know how it's going to be received. So, you know, you could pick the wrong two things to combine or it could take time to get other people interested in it. So like anything in life, there are kind of pros and cons to it. But I feel with the interdisciplinary approach or combining things that often aren't combined together, recombining them, there's a lot of potential for creativity there and it's a very exciting way to work. But sometimes it takes a little bit of perseverance and a little bit of patience. Right? And you also have to have an eye for something that's actually got potential, of course. You've got to look at something and think, why haven't these two things been combined before? Why? It seems so obvious. And if you spot something like that, and then you're like one of the first people to do it, and you're patient, you persevere, then, you know, I think over time, uh, it can be very rewarding. You can define a niche for yourself that way as ever. That is fantastic advice and a, a great place for us to to wrap up this conversation. I, I think that's um, sage advice indeed. I want to, I've recently begun ending with this last question of my guests, and uh, it's the, if you had the power to um, to share an idea, a concept, uh, a, a resource, um, or you know any kind of uh, any idea that would have an impact on people's lives and help them enhance their lives, what would what would you want to share with everyone? 
Well, there are so many things that I could probably pick, but I'll, I'll pick something that's just kind of fresh in my mind, which I actually I mentioned earlier, which is the concept of the view from above, which we take from Stoicism, because that's something that served me very well in life. And uh, the Stoics have this idea, actually, very simplistically, that when we are thinking about events in our lives, we, we usually kind of do it by not we're normally just looking at what's right under our nose you know we're kind of focusing on what's in front of us we're not usually thinking about the bigger picture it takes an effort of thought and imagination to view what's right under our nose as part of a, a bigger picture you have to kind of try you have to make an effort and decide that you're going to do that but and the stories had a number of ways of doing that sometimes they call it a comprehensive representation of things but when we do that i believe that it dilutes negative feelings so it helps us to overcome anger and anxiety when we broaden our perspective there's a ton of psychological research that shows that when people are anxious or angry the scope of attention becomes narrowed down and when the stoics teach us to do the opposite of that by looking at the bigger picture dilutes our negative feelings it helps us to be more calm about things and to view events more rationally so i also think it's a way of accessing creativity. When people are happy and they're feeling creative, we know that their attention tends to become more free moving and expansive in scope. So taking time to take a step back and think about what's right under your nose in terms of like the bigger picture, whether that's the whole of your life or even the whole of human history, and thinking about your situation, your place in the world and the relationships you're part of. Both of overcome obstacles and enhancing creativity. That's fantastic. So, I, I, so what I'm hearing is choose your perspective and choose your future or choose, choose your state of mind. Thank you so much, Donald. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Donald and I deeply appreciate you lending us some of your valuable time and attention. And we hope that today's broadcast invites you to lean into an endeavor that matters with greater curiosity and courage. You can learn more about Donald Robertson and his courses at donaldrobertson.name. And of course, it's always great to see you at Be Creative on Purpose as well. Now, go out there and make a difference and keep flying higher. Donald Robertson, thank you so much for your time and being on the podcast today. Thanks very much, Scott.